the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money talking financial issues, hopefully getting you retirement. That's the thought. That's the idea. It doesn't always work quite that well, but that's the idea, to say the least. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about money, investing, and more. A couple things to hit on, the positives. Auto sales came out this morning that were slightly better than expected. Um, this is important. Not crazy important, but it's important. It's part of the puzzle. And then we also saw more jobs were created by an ADP survey than expected. Now, when we talk to an economist, and we will talk to an economist this hour, uh, he'll probably tell us that those numbers aren't as important as the numbers that come out tomorrow. But again, they're part of the story. And you build a case, and you know you try to figure it all out, and you know, what's working, what's not working, um, and why. Uh, but you have to build that case. You can't just say, I'm going to invest and you know, go away. This is automatically going to work. Um, you have to build a case. And those are two of the pieces. Now, let's talk about some of the other stories that are out there today, financially speaking. Nike co-founder Phil Knight's going to step down as chairman. He's in his mid-70s. It's time to step down. When you're in your mid-70s, you can die. And that would create more havoc than stepping down. He's going to remain as chairman of the company. And they're going to start, you know, his son's on the board now. Um, so his son's being kind of like groomed to be a, a player in the company in the future. Um, so Phil Knight stepping down. Knight has been you know, director of the company since 1968, co-founded the company. He's the 35th richest man in the world. Not a bad number to be. I'd take it, you know. Uh, Women's World Cup. Congratulations to the women. They played a, a sporty game yesterday. But listen to this. and This is an investment trend, and this is a story. Americans have a growing love of streaming video and watching international soccer. And that's good news for Fox Sports, which holds the rights to the Women's World Cup as the U.S. team heads into its semifinal match against Germany, or as they headed into it, um, some you know, of the statistics started to you know, go into place. Now, you're going to have to work with me on this one, because why am I talking streaming app women's soccer? Uh, well, Fox is publicly traded, and 
you know Fox is a TV company, right? But they've got an app called Fox Sports Go. And the three most watched events on the platform since it was launched in 2012 have all come from U.S. matches in this year's tournament. So the USA's game against Colombia, 164,000 people watched. China against Australia, 137,000. Um, and that's pretty impressive. So as a comparison, about 96,000 people tuned in to Fox Sports Go to see the Packers take on the Seahawks in the NFC Championship football game earlier this year. 103,000 people watched Game 7 of the World Series on the service. Uh, like many streaming options, consumers need to prove they are a pay TV customer in order to sign on. HBO Go does the same thing. Um, so again, the women's soccer is beating the NFL, but these are starting to become a little bit bigger numbers. Clearly, the streaming viewership is still far less than traditional TV. According to Nielsen, 5.7 million viewers watched the game against China on Friday. Though through, obviously, June 23rd coverage, the Women's World Cup has averaged a little over 1 million viewers per match. And again, so 5.7 million Americans watched the game, whereas, you know, um, 164,000 streamed the game. So sports fans aren't the only ones excited about a summer of soccer. Fox is set to clean about 17 million in sponsorship revenue from the tournament. Uh, the World Cup is just a different animal because of the format and the flow of the event. U.S. viewership for the summer's tournament has also been helped by time zone logistics. Canada's hosting it, while Germany did it in 2011. I think the story behind the story here is that more Americans are watching sports on streams and more media on streams. Mortgage applications dropped 4.7% on the highest rates in nine months. I think that's important. Um, as interest rates move higher, mortgage rates move higher, you're going to see people being able to afford less home. And if you want to sell your home, you're going to have to lower the price. That's the idea. It may not execute like that, and all markets will be different. But total mortgage application volume fell 4.7% last week. Um, as mortgage rates moved up, the average contract interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage with a conforming loan, that's $417,000 or less, was about 4.2%. That's the highest level since October of 2014. Rates drifted up further last week to str on stronger U.S. economic data. Um, Greece obviously could help, uh, could actually hurt because there could be a flight to safety. In P well, it could actually help. Um, because there could be a flight to safety and more people buying our bonds and our debt would obviously potentially drive down prices of mortgages. Burger King is considered rolling out some vegetarian options. I find this interesting. Um, I think it's right. Again, I'm not an investor in Burger King or anything like that, but uh, the old days of a burger and a bun, lettuce, tomato, aren't, isn't that so 1950s? A veg chili cheese melt, a vegetarian Whopper, a crispy veg, a spicy bean royale, a paneer king melt. Doesn't that sound tastier? I don't know if you're with me or against me on that one, but I think so. Two buck chuck. You know, Trader Joe's sells a bottle of wine for $3 now. And it comes in red and white varieties. Some people call it sugar water and it's undrinkable. Um, one critic says... You know, the company Bronco Wine fails to remove dead birds, leaves, insects, and rodents from its grapes harvests. Now, Bronco Wine denies those allegations, but you know, despite all the criticism, the wine is pretty popular. It's one of the best-selling products ever sold at Trader Joe's. 
it exceeds 800 million bottles since the line debuted in 2002 at $1.99. How do they do it? Well, Bronco Wine has real cheap real estate costs, and they're located in the San Joaquin Valley, where the cost of land is much cheaper than Snowmore Napa. Average higher, higher average temperatures in the San Joaquin Valley can over-ripen grapes, which is the main contributor to the price difference between the regions. Um, it's just a huge lot of space, too. The company ferments wine with oak chips, which are cheaper than barrels. Um, the company also uses one of the cheapest forms of natural cork. Uh, making wine in huge quantities keeps production costs low. Bronco makes an impressive 90 million gallons of wine a year. Little wineries need to get high prices in order to make you know, wine in small batches. And Bronco Wine cuts shipping costs by using light bottles and cheap cartons. Interesting. Now you know why two-buck chuck is so cheap. Fiat Chrysler June auto sales rose 8% from a year ago, boosted by continued strength of its Jeep SUV brand. Ford sales increased 2% a month. GM sales slipped 3% despite the best June on record for its Chevy crossovers. U.S. auto sales often seen as a snapshot into consumer spending. They're expected to rise about 5% this year. Um, big SUVs uh, doing very, very, very well. The Apple Watch not selling as well as expected. Demand seems to be lightening up after the initial push. Since so analysts are now starting to cut estimates from 2016 from like maybe 24 million units down to 21 million. I think they really got to get... Um, the second version right. Um, the watch isn't going to be a major product, at least not right away. It'll take years of refining before it breaks out. Um, young people don't wear watches. Um, if you had a room of 10 to 20 year old kids and we said everyone stand up that has a watch on, not a lot of people would stand up. And uh, Apple sells a lot of phones to 10 to 20 year old kids. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Mr. I like to listen to new music. Maybe it keeps me young, or maybe it kind of hides the fact that I'm getting older. I wish I knew now. I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, it's kind of sad. Because I would be a lot more powerful if I could go back into my 20s. And when I have power, I don't know if powerful is the right way. I would have a lot more to offer. For instance, one of the tips that I would give myself is develop a marketable skill. Everyone in their 20s should have a marketable skill. And you better have it before you hit 30. You're probably not going to love your first job. It won't be your last job. You should try to make the best of it. Um, network like crazy. Say yes to all projects. 
you leave and you'll say, I never want to do this again. You'll go to conferences and you'll be like, oh, this is the worst. I developed a marketable skill in my 20s. I looked for and created opportunities to use it. I talked to everyone I could. I always said yes. Um, outside of the office, I continue to work on skills, per se. Um, some for money, some for craft. So develop a marketable skill. I would say the next thing on that list is establish a budget. We'll also develop a marketable skill. Don't be afraid to experiment. You know, I wanted to be a writer when I was 16, 17. I wanted to write the great American novel. And in college, one of my professors was like, you don't have to write the great American novel until you're 40 or 50. You don't have to do it now, but keep writing, keep practicing. I thought that was good advice. So I experimented a lot with my career. And I think on some levels, I'm writing a novel on financial information for people. Or I'm telling the financial story that you need to hear. You want to establish a budget. It's the craziest thing to tell a 20-year-old is have a budget. Uh, the big thing you need to start to learn is between your needs, your wants, and your dreams. And having a budget is a great way to start thinking about this. A good website for budgeting is mint.com. Um, I use it. It's a little, it little stinks for the first three months because it doesn't realize the difference between locations. But you quickly see like how much you're spending on groceries, how much you're spending on rent, how much you're spending on vacations, and how much are you saving? Are you saving enough? So number one, have a marketable skill. Number two, establish a budget. Number three is get insured. Um, it's not something you think about. You know, now we have healthcare with Obamacare. Um, you insure what you can't afford to lose. You can't afford to lose your health. Health is expensive. If something does happen to you in your 20s, it's going to be you know, $10,000, $20,000. Um, if something terrible happens to you, it's going to be $100,000 and bankrupt you. So make sure you get the Obamacare. But also start thinking about things like renter's insurance and car insurance. There's no shame in knowing prices. So shop it around once a year. Give yourself an hour. Shop all your, in all your insurance policies around. Um, make a debt repayment plan. Now, you've probably come out of college, and maybe you bought a car, you know, something along those lines. Don't get into a situation where they become a burden. So if that means you have to live at home, it means you have to live at home. If that means you have to have five roommates, you have to have five roommates. If that means you have to live in a tent, you have to live in a tent. But you want to start learning how to tackle debt. Um, being young, you haven't had time to bury yourself in much of it. As you get older, you don't want to bury yourself in too much debt. Uh, if you're quick to swipe you know, your card, your first step is to establish a budget, which goes back to idea number two, um, and rein in your spending. So you should always start by paying down your debt with the highest rate cards first. There's very foolish people out there like Suze Orman who say, pay off the smallest one so you'll feel good about yourself. That's just mathematically stupid. Um, another thing you want to do in your 20s is build an emergency fund. At some point in time, you're either going to get laid off, you're going to quit, it's going to take a while for you to get another job. And that emergency fund is what covers you for two to six months while you look for another job. If you're in a job where your, your skills, your marketable skill is awesome, you probably only need two months of emergency funds. If, you, if your marketable skill is kind of questionable, and like you got lucky with your first job, you probably want like six months. Or if you're a salesperson, it's going to take a while to ramp up a customer base. Um, 
So you're starting to save money, you're starting to pay down debt, but you also have to save money in an emergency fund, and it stinks. It's the toughest part of my 20s was I looked back and I was like, I want that TV, or ooh, the Xbox just came out. Um, should I take for my cash savings? No. If you can put an emergency fund somewhere where it's difficult to get, like a Fidelity account, where it's not in your regular checking account, that's the way to do it. So then you don't have that temptation. Um, you want to start saving for retirement in your 20s. And I'm not talking like heavy stuff. I'm talking pretty low-key stuff. Um, there's a guy at the radio station who just got there, and he's young. And I'm just like, they'll match 3%, so you just got a 3% raise if you put in 3%. So now you're saving 3%. They're kicking in 3%, so you're saving 6%. Um, they got gave you a 3% raise essentially for you putting in your own 3%. It's just a right way to go. If a 25-year-old saves just $100 a month, assuming an 8% return, you'll have $346,000 by the time you turn 65 years old. Just $100 a month and getting the historic Wall Street return of 8%. Um, but again, that's your retirement money and you're not supposed to touch it, okay? You want to get credit. And I know this sounds crazy because a lot of people, you know, I'm saying go get a credit card and use it. You should take on some debt. Um, no credit means that when you go to buy a house or go to buy a car, you're going to pay higher interest rates. When you have a credit score, then you'll be able to get better rates. You can easily raise your financial grade by paying all your bills on time. 30% of your score is based on how much you owe, calculating a percentage of your available credit. You don't want to max out your credit card every month. It's bad. Um, even if you always pay off the entire balance, uh, be sure to use your card sparingly. FICO high achievers who score at least 750 on a scale of 300 to 850 typically use just about 7% of their available credit. Um, in your 20s, you want to quit the bank of mom and dad. You know, you do want to get out there on your own and establish like you know your goals of becoming self-sufficient because you're going to have to become self-sufficient. You have to have a marketable skill. You have to have your own insurance. Uh, you have to have an emergency fund. You want to clean up your online presence, which is kind of a crazy thought. Um, put down the red cups. Um, try to scrub your public image as clean as possible. Your social media activity is viewable by the entire web surfing world at times. Uh, potential employers, get your digital act together. Um, polish your online image. And also in your 20s, you want to start keeping your more like financial documents in order. Um, get your birth certificate, social security card, uh, get a safe, start, you know, a system of like scanning all your financial papers, your bills, just, just get organization, I guess is the word that I want there. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. But it's not my scene, want this block to twist, I've had enough mystery, keep building it up, but I know what you're trying to say, baby. You're trying to say, oh, yeah, it's business time.
stretching out teeth. That's all part of it. That's foreplay. Foreplay is very important in love making. Joining me now, Dr. Jeff Rosen, Briefing.com Chief Economist. Mr. Rosen, how are you? Oh, pretty good. How yourself? Good, good. We've got a holiday shortened week, which means the jobs number gets pushed up from Friday to Thursday. We got a little glimpse this morning when the ADP report on businesses adding jobs totaled 237,000. What's your opinion of the ADP report, and what are we looking at for tomorrow's jobs report? Yeah, I mean, it, it's fairly in line with what job numbers or with job expectations. I think the uh, private sector expectations right around 225. Or 220, and I think the um, the total payroll uh, expectation tomorrow is right around 230, maybe a little bit lower than that. Now, overall, we're expecting a good, a good number. I mean, I don't really use the ADP as a forecast. I think that uh, basically all the number is is Moody's.com's or Moody's Economy.com's forecast for tomorrow's number. You know, give it as that it is. You know, we're looking for a good number. I mean, I, I would. I would be very surprised if the number comes in below uh, 200, and I would actually be quite shocked. And does that pretend to growth in the economy? Yeah, I mean, when we're looking at what, what we really want to see isn't necessarily, you know, it's a coincidence indicator, so it's explaining what's going on today. So it's not going to tell us, you know, much about future economic growth. It's not used in the leading indicators, for example. You know, but what we want to see is income growth. What we want to see is hours worked go up. We want to see the average hourly earnings go up. We want to see payrolls move up in line with that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the BLS report uh, on their JOLTS number, which is the uh, job openings data, and it showed that there was 5 million jobs open and available you know, if people can fill them. That's uh, the most in the history of the index. Now, granted, the index only goes back to uh, right around 2000. I think December of 2000 is the first date that we get. But, you know, it tells us there's a lot of jobs open. So we're trying to see why they're not being filled. We're, what's the holdup? Where's the bottleneck coming from? Is it because uh, the labor force, the unemployed, don't have the skills required to take those jobs? You know, can businesses just simply not find workers that are qualified? Or is it that businesses are open to hiring, but they're only going to hire the absolute perfect candidates because they have their choice of picking from, you know, a whole bunch. So instead of, you know, let's say hiring someone and then having to train them, maybe they're better off or maybe they feel that they're better off of just waiting until a trained worker shows up at their door. And those are two very different uh you know, analyses of where the economy is going or what the economy is doing today. So we really want to see, you know, if businesses are fighting, you know, for labor because they can't find people, we would expect to see wages go up significantly over the next couple coming months. If businesses are just not hiring because they're, you know, sitting on their heels waiting for the perfect candidate because they know the candidate's out there, they're just not showing up at their door yet, we're not going to see wage growth. And the job opening will just languish on and on. We'll just you know, it'll just make the data look all messed up. <laughs> Anything else that we need to know about the jobs numbers that you see as insightful? Yeah, I mean, the Fed is going to be highly, you know, is looking at these numbers, you know, with, with great interest. I mean, we know the Fed wants to raise rates. We've, we've heard it from uh, Chair Yellen. We've heard it from the other FOMC board members. We've heard it from Fed presidents. 
know, they're just looking for the data to give them some sort of confirmation that, you know, t now is the time. If you look at the, at the unemployment number, you know, unemployment's at, what, 5.5%. I think the consensus for tomorrow is 5.4%. And there have been a lot of people in our consensus, the briefing.com consensus, that has, uh, you know, forecasted a 5.3% unemployment rate, you know, for this coming month. If you look at the CBO, who calculates potential uh, employment, potential unemployment rates, which is the guide of you know, how low unemployment can go before you have a, you know, a significant acceleration in inflation, you know, it's rated at 5.4, 5.5. So the unemployment rate as it stands is telling us that we're at full employment, that we should be expecting to see a move in inflation. However, you know, and this is a big caveat, the population to employment ratio is so much lower now than it has been in the past because a lot of people have simply left the labor force due to the recession and haven't returned. Now, we expect those people to come back, and if you look at simple demographics, you know, some of these people left because of retiring, but a lot of the people left because they just simply couldn't find a job and they just haven't come back yet because they don't still feel like they could find a job that suits what they, need, what they can do. And if that's the case, if we look at just the demographic ratios, you know, the unemployment rate, instead of being 5.4%, 5.5%, is really closer to 7, 7.5%, which is a big difference, meaning that there's still a lot of slack in the, in, the, you know, in the system. And if there's a lot of slack, you don't want to have rates tighten because it just makes it much more harder to see economic gains. So what we want to look at, what the Fed's going to look at tomorrow, is not necessarily you know, what that unemployment rate is today or what the payroll number looks like. They're going to look at that average hourly earnings and that work week and see if businesses are requiring to increase their pay to attract labor. You know, are we seeing inflationary pressures? If we start to see the inflationary pressures, it would give the Fed that much more comfort to raise rates. And if we're thinking a rate hike, you know, most economists are expecting it in September, which would correspond with the next um, Fed chair press conference. You know, you really only have two more data points to get there, and this would be a big one. Okay. Um, the other data that we're, I'm seeing today, manufacturing indexes continue to rise in the United States, leaving a little bit of soft patch behind, revving up activity. Is manufacturing important still to the U.S.? Because we know that a lot of manufacturing jobs went overseas. Is this a good sign or a bad sign? Yeah, I mean, it's a good sign. I mean, I don't look at the overall top-line number of the ISM. I care more about the production number. The production number was a little bit soft. You know, it tells me that, that the manufacturers aren't producing as quickly as or as much as they did, you know, not too long ago. You know, really, I mean, the ISM in itself is, is not the best indicator. What you really want to do is look at that industrial production number, and that's been pretty miserable for the last couple months. And, uh, you know, when we start seeing a move to a stronger industrial production number, you know, that's important. And the reason why it's important is that, you know, the cyclical nature of the business cycle tends to show up most often and the largest uh, part in manufacturing sectors. So, the service sector tends to be pretty stable. So when you have big disruptions in manufacturing, you have recessions or you have extreme significant economic growth. When manufacturing is just stable, you know, we should expect to see a stable you know, recovery or a stable economy. So you tend to look at the manufacturing sector just to see where the, the ebbs and flows of overall economic gains are going to come from because that's really the only cyclical nature that we have. 
Anything else that you're seeing out there in the world of economics that you think should be brought up? Yeah, I was real happy with today's uh, construction numbers. I mean, really, okay. really happy. We had a 2% gain in uh, April. Typically, when you get a gain in that neighborhood, you would expect to see a natural pullback just because you know, it's hard to sustain growth at that rate. So, you know, in my mind, I was expecting, you know, maybe a half percent uh, pullback from what we saw in April and to, to occur in May. Consensus had a small 0.3 percent expectation of growth, and we easily exceeded that. Uh, and it, it was really impressive. You know, if you look at the details, it was a lot in manufacturing. If you look at the non-residential sector, growth came predominantly from the manufacturing sector. So that was a really nice move. You know, we've had a you know, the way the, uh, the construction industry has been, you need these cyclical-type uh, industries, manufacturing, construction, to really expand, see economic growth, you know, in, in terms of GDP, accelerate. And that's kind of what we saw. You know, that's what we, we got in, in today's construction numbers. Anything that you're working on for briefing.com that uh, you do longer articles and they're pretty insightful and they're pretty easy reads. Anything that's uh, jumping out that we should yeah, be aware of? Yeah, I mean, we're just basically looking, you know, at the housing industry specifically. Um, you know, the, the existing home sales numbers that we got last week, the new home sales numbers that we got last week were really good. You know, we know that a lot of this growth may be as a result of demand being pulled forward because interest rates are expected to rise. And if that's the case, are these numbers stable? We want to kind of get an idea of who's making the purchases, how interest rate sensitive these purchases are, so we can get an idea if rates do rise in the, in the coming months. And, then, you know, if we start to see mortgage rates creep, you know, back above 4%, 4.5%, how is that going to impact sales? You know, right now we think that a lot of the, the gains that we got in the latest data, which was May's numbers, were uh, demand being pulled forward. And if that's the case, we would expect to see a pullback you know, maybe not in June, but you know, definitely by August and September. So, you know, just looking at the coming months and seeing how interest rate sensitive these sectors are, and seeing you know who's making the purchases. You know, first-time homebuyers made a significant chunk in the last um, last report. You know, investor demand is slowing. That's a good sign for economic gains for a stable housing market, and just kind of looking to see where those things are matching. Any quick thoughts, like 10-second thoughts on Greece? Um, it's scary. It's back and forth, back and forth. You know, I don't think there's going to be any, you know, lasting understanding of where things are going to go, you know, until next week after the referendum. So, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, but I don't think it's having a, a major impact on U.S. Uh, economic growth. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Jeff Rosen, briefing.com. He's the chief economist. Have a good fourth. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. Rob Black and your money.
I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Um, I like to try to find value for you. It's something that I think uh, is important to cut down on risk. If you cut down on risk, you can cut down on, re- on volatility. If you cut down on volatility, you can sometimes um, not get afraid of the market, not get to the point where you're like, I hate this. I want you to be, have a positive experience, not a ba- negative one. Like One of the areas that you could actually do really well as an investor is to invest in tobacco stocks. Now, you're saying tobacco stocks? Tobacco kills people. They keep raising prices. I know. That's kind of the point, right? As an investor. Now, as a human being, maybe not your thing, and that's fine. Um, I'm still shocked that I see people smoke. Philip Morris International trades at a PE of 17 times earnings. So it's about the market. Now, again, you know, earlier in the show, I was talking about Nike being at 30, 35 times earnings. Um, Philip Morris is trading at basically the same earnings this year as next year. So no one's expecting a lot of growth from it. But what you get is value. It'll yield you about 4.9% in a dividend yield. And maybe you can get 1% or 2% growth. Um, I think it's a stock you can count on. And I hate saying it out loud. I feel like a horrible human being for liking Philip Morris. My dad died of cancer. Um... I think there's some growth in international smoking. So Philip Morris is the international component. A couple of years ago, Philip Morris spun, split the company. Altria was going to represent the United States, and Philip Morris was going to be the international angle. Um, and Altria is a nice stock as well. Again, I still see people with e-cigarettes and cigarettes and mouth tobacco and uh, chew. You know, so there's some value there, but. In exchange, you're going to have to own a company that creates cancer. Um, you know, there's... Uh, Philip Morris has been out of favor as an investment. So already it's sold off a bit. And it's been out of favor because of foreign exchange rates. Philip Morris International is exclusively non-U.S. sales. The company has exposure to some tougher areas like Russia as well. What we see through is that the company has pricing power. A lot of people ask, you know, what about lower gas prices? There are lower fuel prices internationally. And with that, you've actually seen a pickup in volume of smokes. Um, the phrase that analysts use for uh, a pack of cigarettes is sticks. Um, it's not encouraging people to start smoking, but those who smoke are smoking more. And anyone who has pricing power in the low-flationary environment really has a fundamental support. Smoking uh, is very bad for you, okay? Smoking is very, very bad for you. But tobacco companies generate large cash flows. Their ability to pay dividends is solid. And a company would be loath to ever cut its dividend. Free cash flow is very, very strong. Um, I think, you know, Google is something I find attractive. There's a lot of controversy around Google. The company has exposure to foreign exchange costs, stronger dollar. 
the European Union's regulatory decision hurt and the market is concerned about the company's elevated investment spending. Concern has driven down Google's valuation of mid-teens multiples, and that's, you know, minus stock compensation, which makes it amongst the cheapest of the high-growth stocks out there. Google still accounts for over 50% of all Internet advertising outside of China. They've got multiple avenues of monetization, which, whether it is a core search, which is basically everyone's default search engine, or YouTube franchise, which Google bought for a billion and a half in 2006. It's probably worth anywhere between 30 and 50 billion now. There's a lot of ways the company can monetize a number of its small tuck-in acquisitions like Google Maps. And the valuation's hard to ignore. Google doesn't pay a dividend, so that's a negative. Um, look at large cap tech companies who pays dividends. You probably don't want to own them. Um, Hewlett Packard, Texas Instruments, CNC. Microsoft's okay. Um, Google get evaluated anywhere near some of these yesterday startup companies, tech companies, um, is very attractive. So Cigna is a top holding um, that you can take a look at. Cigna has become a very attractive business. It grows faster than its peers. Health insurance comprises about 75% of its earnings, but it's got a nice little niche on administrative services only segment, ASO, that allow companies to go with a self-funded option as opposed to full risk option. Given the Affordable Care Act, what you're seeing now is that some people call the Cadillac tax, huge taxes and fees on full risk insurance programs. So a lot of middle large size companies are moving to the ASO category where they self-fund their risk and there's a stop loss provision. Uh, and Cigna is a big player in that market. So the company is a bit immune from what we're seeing right now at this point in time on larger health maintenance organization names. So it's one of the better capital allocators out there. Very attractive company. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220. Anything that you want to talk about, we could talk about. Macy's has cut ties with Donald Trump. Again, be careful what you say in front of large groups of people. And today, anyone is a large group of person with social media. Um, be cautious. 800-516-1220 to get your calls in the air. Um, drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. Markets open higher, and they started to trend a little bit lower, but they're still positive for the day. In the end, there's going to be a lot of action this week because of Greece. Uh, she loves me, she loves me not kind of action. If you have any questions, drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com. Take care. Have a good day. Talk to you soon. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.